Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hi, Allison. On this week's episode, we're joined by New York Times reporter John Schwartz to talk about his book, This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. Bro is also going to share five lessons learned from the fall of GE. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, in theory, you'd think that General Electric would make for a solid long-term investment, co-founded by none other than Thomas Edison. The company has been around since 1892. For decades, it has been one of the biggest, most diversified companies in the world, and it paid a steady dividend. We've all used the company's products and services, probably sometimes on a daily basis. But so far this century, the reality of GEE is that it has been a horrible investment. After reaching almost $60 per share in 2000 on a split-adjusted basis, it now trades for $14. Wow! Yes. So, what are the lessons for investors, workers, and retirees alike? Well, I have five. <laughs> Let's start with number one. Even blue chips get the blues. So, back in the early 1920s, according to Wall Street lore, a Dow Jones employee named Oliver Gingold was standing next to a stock ticker machine in a brokerage that would eventually become known as Merrill Lynch, and he saw a few stocks trading for more than $200 a share, and they moved higher, so he reportedly turned to the person standing next to him and said he had to get back to his office to, quote, write about these blue-chip stocks. Thus, an investment seal of approval was born. The term blue-chip actually was originally applied to stocks with high prices, because blue-chips are worth more than red and white chips. Oh, from gambling! Yes! But they have since become be thought of as reliable, steady stocks. In fact, according to Merriam-Webster, the current definition of a blue chip is a stock issue of high investment quality that usually pertains to a substantial, well-established company and enjoys public confidence in its worth and stability. Ah. Well, where can you find such stocks? Well, you look at the index, the only index that has the term blue chip in its, its official description, and that is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. GE is actually was among the 12 original companies listed on the Dow, which was created in 1896, and it's the only original member of the Dow that's still in the index. Wow. But despite such a blue-chip pedigree, GE hasn't been a model of stability or reliability over the past 18 years. So the lesson here is, no stock is a surefire moneymaker, despite being called a blue-chip. Lesson number two, holding for the long term is no guarantee of success. So it was early 1996 when GE stock first exceeded $14 a share on a split-adjusted basis. Here we are, 22 years later, and the stock is still at $14 a share. So that's a holding period of more than two decades with no growth. So our standard foolish advice is to keep money that you need in the next three to five years out of the stock market, because generally that's how long it takes for the stock market to recover from a bear market. But an individual stock is a very different thing. So, as the history of GE illustrates, even a time frame of well more than a decade, two decades, is not a guarantee that you're going to make money. Lesson number three, past dividends are not necessarily indicative of future results. So, like many companies during the Great Depression, GE cut its dividend. But the payouts weren't reduced again for decades, not until 2009 in the Great Recession. So, those intervening 80 or so years, investors might have understandably thought, well, 
a dividend from GE is like death and taxes. It's a sure thing. But the reality is that no dividend is guaranteed, and unfortunately for GE shareholders, they cut the dividend again last December. So it can be tempting to believe that something that happened for decades will continue into the future, but the creative evolution of capitalism ensures that no investor can rest on a company's past laurels. Lesson number four, a diversified company isn't a substitute for a diversified portfolio. So there are really few companies that have been in as many businesses in as many countries, currently 130 to be exact, as GE has. You think of appliances, electronics, aviation, healthcare, transportation, finances, entertainment, plastics, and of course, light bulbs. Some sort of GE business or service has touched the lives of millions and perhaps billions of people. But its multiple businesses in multiple countries didn't prevent the stock from being a dud of an investment. And unfortunately, this is a lesson painfully learned by many former GE employees, according to a recent Wall Street Journal article. They thought they were in a fine position to retire, given that they were getting a pension from GE, as well as a heaping helping of company stock, because they had a stock purchase program. You can buy it at a discount. Uh, so, in one case, they profiled someone who retired in 2016 with $300,000 worth of company stock. But because the company has lost more than half its value in less than two years, this particular retiree is now looking at having to go back to work. Ugh. So, the bottom line, of course, is don't invest more than 5 to 10% of your portfolio in one stock regardless of the size and the reach of the company. And our last lesson, number five, have a plan B. So over the past several months, GE has announced plans to cut thousands of jobs and reduce its corporate staff by 25%. Wow, that is substantial. Substantial. So if you're still working, your financial future will be determined by two things, your human capital, that is your ability to earn a paycheck, as well as your investment capital. And most people can't count on staying with the same company as Oliver Jingle did, the corner of the blue chip stocks yeah. term. He began at Dow Jones in 1900 at the age of 15, and he worked there until he died in 1966. So he had a 66-year career with Dow Jones. Most of us can't rely on that. So the lesson here is, just as your portfolio should be diversified, so should your human capital. Regularly develop your skills, your network, and your backup plan for what you'll do if your employer no longer needs or can afford your services. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. Most of us can look back on our lives and think of times when we wish we had made different decisions when it comes to our money. According to a bank rate survey from last year, four out of five adults have financial regrets. The biggest being not saving enough for retirement, not saving enough for emergencies, taking on too much credit card debt, taking on too much student loans, and not saving for kids' college educations. So chances are, over the course of your life, you've made some mistakes as well. However, you likely didn't write a whole book about them, <laughs> unless you're John Schwartz, a science writer for the New York Times and the author of a new book, This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. And we are fortunate to have John join us for this episode. Hello, John, and welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So you have had a successful career writing for some of the country's most well-known publications. You also raised three kids along the way. And then at some point in your mid-50s, 
you decide it's time to really get your financial life in order. Was there a, a light, bulb, light bulb moment that convinced you and your wife that it was time to sort of dig into this project? Well, there were two things going on, bro. One is that I was in my mid-50s, and I realized that I was getting closer to retirement. Retirement was something that I could sort of see, though I didn't know when I was going to do it yet. It was it was um, something within the realm of possibility, and at the same time, you know, close enough to be scary, but far enough away. I figured that if I needed a course correction, I could take it. At the same time, my wife had convinced me to sell the house we'd been in for 15 years, which allowed us to wipe the slate clean on a lot of the debts that were strangling us. Uh, we had some credit card stuff, but we also had the college loans for our two older kids. And so suddenly we had breathing room. And in that moment of something like clarity, I realized that I should stop just fretting over where we were financially and figure it out. As you point out in your book, you're not alone. There are plenty of people who have not really gotten a stronghold on their finances well into their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Why do you think it is that it's difficult. What is it about finances that people find difficult or intimidating? Well, you know, many people in your general audience are happy to think about money, love thinking about investing. You know, it's 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 a cool thing. For a lot of other people, it's just scary. Uh, money is emotional. Thinking about money is emotional. We use emotional terms when we talk about it. Was your father withholding? Uh, you know, we, we just, um, for people a little more like me, there's more phobia going into it. And so um, it's one of the things that if other important stuff is happening, it's easy to push to the side. So I've read the book and I quite enjoyed it. I've pulled, oh, thank fi- you. I've pulled five lessons from it. Now you're hearing these five for the first time, so feel free to disagree with them or change them in any way. But first, let me set the stage a little bit more about your biography. So you grew up in Galveston, Texas, and your father was a state senator and lobbyist who, at age 91, is still active in politics, which I think is pretty impressive. You got an undergraduate degree and a law degree from the University of Texas, but instead of becoming a lawyer, you decide to try your hand at journalism. You get a job with Newsweek, move to New York City. In 1988, you buy a co-op apartment when, by the way, mortgage rates were over 10%. And this brings us to what I think is number one lesson in your book, and that is Know what you're getting before you buy. Tell us a little bit about why buying this apartment didn't turn out quite like you had hoped. Well, if you go into the world of real estate with the idea that you can't go wrong in real estate, which is how a lot of people felt before, say, you know, 2007, then you might be lulled into thinking, God, everybody's buying, I'd better buy. And you look at a place and you say, well, this looks like a good value without doing the kind of research that tells you whether you're going to be comfortable in the place, whether it's financially likely to do well and do well for you. And we fell in love with the building, fell in love with the apartment. It was big. By New York standards, it was enormous. And it was up in Washington Heights, which is a really cool neighborhood. But uh, when it came time to sell, we found that it was unsellable for a number of reasons we could go into. But This was a big set of problems that might have been avoided if I'd done more research and also if I'd waited out this this interest bump that we were in the middle of. Yeah, there's also a sense that when you get to a certain age, like, that's just what you do. Like, 
we're at right? this age and now now I'm supposed to buy a house, right. I think regardless point, of whether it's a great decision for you financially. Right. You had, I think you had at least one kid at that point. So, right. of course, we you feel like you've got to buy a place. Exactly. It's, it's, it's on the program. Right, right. You were, you were doing everything right. Come on. That's right. Yeah. Only problem was that I did those right things in the wrong way. Uh, right. Well, the other thing, it turns out that your neighbors were, were I guess, I don't know how you say it, the most family friendly folks. A lot of noise. One guy threatens to cut you. I mean, oh, things, <laughs> things like that. It's very difficult, yeah, right? Yeah, Allison, you got to read the book. It's fun. <laughs> 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 yeah, um, it was, I mean, you know, there were problems in the building. If I'd spent more time in the building, I might have known that, okay, you love the building, but maybe this particular apartment isn't the one you want. Right. Maybe maybe you want to look for a different one that, uh, you know, maybe you want to wait till a different one comes open. We didn't know that the upstairs neighbors ran a music studio out of their apartment. But we found out once yeah. we were there. <laughs> Fantastic. Lull your kid to sleep every night, right? It worked out so well. Well, well one, of their, one of the ways they solved it was to get a, an air conditioning unit that was the loudest. Am I right on that? Do I, am I That's remember? right. I walked, into, I walked into the appliance store and I said, uh, can you help me? I want the loudest air conditioner you've got. And, of course, <laughs> they look at you like that's not really the request we get. Right. But they had heard it before. Okay, so let's move on to lesson number two because it's related. So a few years later, you uh, take a job with the Washington Post and you move to the D.C. suburbs, actually the People's Republic of Tacoma Park. And I bring that up because you and I, John, moved to Tacoma Park at the exact same time, which is a story for another time. But regardless, you moved from New York. You couldn't sell the apartment. You decide to try to rent it out, which brings us to lesson number two. Know your rights as a landlord before becoming a landlord. That's right. In many other parts of the country, when the second tenant I got simply stopped paying, I might have been able to fill out some papers and start an eviction um, pretty pretty painlessly. Of course, the you know the downside of that is we have an eviction crisis in this country, and in many places it's too easy to evict, and bad things happen to people who don't have the resources to defend themselves. New York is a little different. It's uh, much more pro-tenant rights, and while I support the idea, in my particular case, it did not turn out well. And uh, and the guy knew his rights better than I knew mine, and uh, he said to me over the phone, uh, in words that I won't repeat here because they're fine for print but not for, not for the podcast, I guess, he said, you know, you're not going to get me out of here. I'll be here in Christmas bells before you get me out of here. And we were pretty early in the year at that point. And, uh, and so um, I was just not aware of what problems I would have if somebody stopped paying because I did the things you're supposed to do. I did a credit check. The guy looked good. Right. right? I, I, I didn't just stumble into it. I did the things that I thought you're supposed to do. Ultimately, with uh, with that guy, I talked to a lawyer who said, yeah, I could try to evict him, and it would take this amount of time, and it'll cost you this amount of money. Here's something that might be painful, but I think you should try. Send him a note saying if he leaves by the end of the month, you won't go after him for the money he owes you. And I did, and he left. Yeah. And, but he, and he did not leave the apartment in great condition. Uh, which No, he tore it up pretty right, good. Right. He wasn't nice. I mean, right. he, you know, and, and by the way, by the time he left, our savings were gone. Um, we, were, we, were, uh, we were in pretty bad shape. And we were paying the mortgage in New York and the maintenance fees and 
uh, rent in the in Tacoma Park, and ultimately uh, we bought a house there, and so we're paying the mortgage there as well. And it was just it was just uh, squeezing us to death. Well, then this brings us actually to lesson number three, which you already touched on, which is to get the right advice. And there are various aspects various aspects of this. First of all, you did find a lawyer that was able to give you some good advice, even though other people were hinting that you should uh, possibly declare bankruptcy. But in the end, you found some other solution. Well, that's right. Um, the The thing that comes immediately to mind when you've got a crushing debt and a, and this sort of money drain of, of this New York apartment, people said, well, you've got to file for bankruptcy. I mean, I mean, relatives who were lawyers said it's time to file for bankruptcy. But um, when it came time to find an expert to help us through it, you go to an actual bankruptcy expert, you might get different advice. And we did. I found a guy who was terrific. And he said, all right, you've described your financials to me you aren't a candidate for bankruptcy. You only have one big problem. Your income is decent. Your debt load is, aside from this, pretty low. You have one problem, and the way you get rid of that problem is through default and foreclosure. And so you now need to give up the apartment. And he walked me through what I would have to do, and I did it, and I felt like the biggest failure in the world. Right. So that's a good outcome. <laughs> <laughs> but you did get out from under that, so that's good. Uh, another, oh, it is. An, another situation in which you didn't get great advice was the advisor who sold you an annuity as a way to save for college. Yes. Um, he was a guy who showed up at work. He gave a presentation. He sounded smart. We said, well, let's go talk to him. We have no idea how to save for college. We didn't. We, uh, we figured experts know things. And, uh, and, you know, the guy was smart, but he didn't sell us the, the savings plan that would be right for us. He had a complex annuity set up that he said, this will pay your, you know, this will pay the interest and you'll be able to pay it down and, and this will come every month. And, you know, my wife just said, why are we doing this if we're going to just pay the money? <laughs> right. And when it came time for my daughter to go to college, she cashed the things in and paid down, you know, and, and, and paid for tuition with them because they weren't appreciating in value in the way that the guy said they would. And what's worse, they didn't offer us any of the supposed advantages that they would offer. He had he had said that because of the way these things were structured, they wouldn't show up on your financial aid forms, which is, you know, not quite fraud. But, um, but as a matter of fact, Everything we had did show up on the financial aid forms unless we wanted to commit fraud. And, uh, and you know, in some specific areas, in some, with some specific schools, you could put it aside over here as a different investment vehicle. But, in fact, it did nothing of the good it was supposed to do for us. And uh, the only person it really did a lot of good was for was the guy who got the fees. Right. Yeah. And it's just, just to make it clear for listeners, any type of life insurance or annuity is not a good way. <laughs> to save for college. Um, in your book, you actually talk to various types of financial professionals, traditional broker, someone at Vanguard, a fee-only planner with the Garrett Planning Network. Generally speaking, where do you come down on that? If someone wants financial advice, where do you think they should turn first? I got 
real religion on the idea that you want to try to separate yourself from somebody else's conflict of interest to the greatest extent possible. It doesn't mean that every broker is bad. Some of them are terrific, right? But my preferences now go to the people uh, who start out with a fiduciary duty to you, who have to, who are obligated by the terms of their employment to put your needs first. And, uh, and I came down on um, hourly rate fee-only financial planners because for most people, for many people, you come up with specific problems. If you can formulate the question, they can provide the answers and work with you. And you don't need somebody um, telling you how to churn your portfolio every two months. Right. So, so uh, and, and there's a sort of lunch visit in the, in the book with, with one of these people. And he was, you know, he was terrific. So if you are going to go with a broker, I also recommend that you ask many, many questions and be as tough in finding that person as you would be in, you know, finding a car. I mean, we ask all sorts of tough questions as consumers in all sorts of areas of our lives. But because there's this person sitting across from us, we might, you know, chicken out. Right. This is not a time to chicken out. This is your money. Got it. Okay, so on to lesson number four. Be prepared for medical emergencies. So a few things can upend a family's finances like unexpected health care costs. In your book, you cited a few examples, including expensive dental care for your son that wasn't covered by insurance. Fortunately, you had been participating in the New York Times employee stock purchase plan, so you had that as a resource. Unfortunately, when you had to sell, you had to sell at a 90% loss. Yeah, but it worked out. <laughs> That's the spirit. His teeth look terrific. Come on. And and by the way, the stock has recovered really nicely, so all my friends who still own Time stock are in great shape. Aww. I'm really happy for them. That's so All sweet you shareholders you. out there, I love you, I hug you, I want you to be happy. That's so great. What's the German word for the opposite of Schadenfreude? That's really sweet. See, whatever it is, I've got it. <laughs> Um, I'm just nice, you know? I'm just, you know, this thing happened to me. I mean, look, in the financial world, I am the inflatable clown punching bag. You know, (laughs) I get knocked down, a little sand in the bottom just brings me right back up again. You can take another punch. The world has. It's fine. I'll still be smiling. It's fine. In the the book, you also point out that it's not just people and that you ended up having to pay $5,000 for a weekend's worth of tests for your cat. Uh. Yes. Okay, so I'm not happy about that one. <laughs> but thanks, bro. Thank totally, you very much for bringing totally up. I totally understand you know, about I had that. gone a couple of days without thinking about the cat. <laughs> um, I will say that probably for me, one of the, the saddest stories in the book is of Jolie Solomon. I don't know if I got her first name correctly, but she was a reporter with the Wall Street Journal and others, other publications for more than 30 years. But now, as I understand it, lives in virtual poverty due to her daughters and her own health problems. Jolie is an immensely talented journalist and, uh, and a gifted writer, a gifted editor, and, uh, and her health problems um, really drove her out of the workplace and, uh, and left her in, uh, in really tough condition. And the, uh, and the, the poverty and the fear of her medical costs, uh, eventual bankruptcy, just were terribly traumatic to her. Um, and 
I tell her story to say, as you know, as we've said in our many conversations, that this can happen to anyone. Anyone can get sick. Um, anyone can be incapacitated. And it's, it's almost fashionable when people get sick and get sort of forced out of the, the, off the work track uh, to try to find fault with them. You know, what'd you, what'd you do wrong? Right. Or, you know, we, you know, poor people are lazy. People say that. They actually say it. Well, there's nothing lazy about my friend Jolie. Um, and, and when this hit her, uh, I saw myself in her. I saw anybody I know. And so uh, she was kind enough to let me tell the story. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a cautionary tale. Um, so let's move on to lesson number five and, and on a happy note, because in the end, you and your wife, Jean, are doing fine. And, and part of that is due to lesson number five, which is save at least 10% as soon as you can and don't peak. So despite your claims of not really knowing a whole lot about money when you were younger, you did know enough to start saving 10% in the company 401k in your late 20s. And the don't peak part comes from your conversation with John Bogle. That's right. Look, I didn't do everything wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do you feel like we're beating you up too much? No, no, we're fine. I'm fine. But, you know, but, but, but I, I had one good thought. I mean, you know, I do some things well, some things badly. I'm good with paragraphs. But in, in that moment, in my 20s, I got a nice raise, and I realized that if I put 10% of my income into a 401k at that moment, it would be money I'd never see otherwise. I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't lose it. And so I never felt the dip in my income that committing big to a 401k would, would cause. Of course, you know, I explain in the book, too, you can start a 401k with 1%. You can start an IRA with 1% of your income, which shouldn't feel like much and then have it ratchet up every year. If you can stick with that, then you can get to 10% pretty quickly. But, uh, but I was able to do it all at once, and I was able to stick with it. The part that I did wrong was that I didn't do enough research to understand what the best investments might be. And so it's possible that I might have had by now more in the account. I've made some adjustments in my year of, of, uh, of looking at my financial life and moved into lower fee funds and stuff like that. So I could have done better, but I could have done a lot worse. Right. And you and the analysis that you got, I think ultimately from from Vanguard because you despite your your various jobs, your three main jobs, the 401k was with Vanguard Vanguard throughout the whole period, which is part of why you ended up I think talking to John Bogle. Um, so despite all that the the analysis you got is that you're probably going to be okay. You have been saving. You are fortunate to have worked for companies that will provide that classic defined benefit pension. Uh, And as you already mentioned, you downsized recently your home from New Jersey that allowed you to pay off some of the debts that you had. So in the end, you and Gene are going to be okay, correct? I think that's exactly right. I mean, barring some other mess, and you know, it's always out there, right? Right. But but if, if things continue in the way they're going, we ought to be okay, and that's the that's the good news of the book is that uh, we made it, and we would hope that other people could figure that out as well for themselves, especially by starting young. Right. Uh, a bonus part of the book is I wouldn't call it necessarily a lesson because it's not nothing. It didn't lead to any problems for you. Is that 
but you did go and did go into details about getting an estate plan. You point out That's that exactly right. that Prince died without a will, and that you were about the same age, and at that point in your life, you didn't have a will either. But also, as a, as a journalist, you covered the Terry Schiavo case, which was, I think most of us remember, it could have been avoided to a certain degree with better estate planning on her family's part. Tell us a little bit about your, your road to getting an estate plan. Well, it is, again, one of those things that I avoided because, okay, I've already said I'm a little phobic about money, right? That I would rather think about other things. Now let's talk about death. No, let's not talk about death. <laughs> let's no, really not talk, about, talk death. about death. No wants to talk about death, no. Yeah, why would I talk about it? And so um, one of the really nice things about having a job that is sort of all-consuming is that you can put off every decision in your life for a really long time and claim, well, I, I don't have time, I'm working. Right. So... While assessing all these other things, I decided it was a really time to get the will. And um, because I'm, you know, not terrific with paperwork and, uh, and we felt that our lives were a little complicated, my wife and I decided that we would go with an attorney. Um, I found one in, uh, nearby, and he, and he turned out to be a very nice guy who was funny. I, I place funny really high on my list of what I look for in a professional. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, you know, if it's, if it's funny, not mean, but actually funny, that shows a kind of warmth that, uh, that I can relate to. I don't know. But, but he also had good recommendations from friends. And he walked us through what we might need. He walked us through the issues that we were going to encounter. He, um, he let us know that we were nowhere near the limits of the estate tax, so we'd be fine there. But um, And then after uh, walking through all this in his office over the course of something like an hour and a half, we went away, and a week or so later, not only did he provide the, the wills themselves, one for me and one for Jean, my wife, but also summaries that were very readable. And he also had walked us through and wrote up for us advanced directives, medical power of attorney, the sort of documents that make sure that if you don't want to end up in a hospital, all tubes and no consciousness, with people working you over um, to no avail, to no benefit, if, if, like me, you really don't want to see that happen, not just to yourself, but to your family standing by, that this is the way to make those wishes explicit and get them down on paper. Um, it's not, you know, I'd, I'd always joke to my daughter that, you know, I just want you to, if I end up unable to do certain things, these things, you just, you just get a gun, and she says, Daddy, yeah. you know, that's, that's not the way to do this. It's, it's a fun little conversation, a little family moment. Shoot me, Daddy. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I've, I've, I can relate to that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of way we talk to each other. Put me out on an ice flow. Dad! <laughs> Dad, you're embarrassing me. Um, but, you know, but it, but, it, but it only gets you so far. And it doesn't help you with the hospital. Well, you know, we had this conversation and he said, shoot me. So, so there she is. She's there in the hospital and it's, oh, it's just mayhem. See, yeah, the, the, you know, the legal, ram- the, the legal effect of that is just not great. Right, yeah. But pieces of paper, they know what to do with pieces of paper. And so you get the piece of paper, and you, 
leave a copy with the lawyer and you make sure that the kids have copies or know where to find them because you just spend a lot of money on this stuff. You, you want it to be useful. And, and then you hope that these bad things don't happen. But you feel a lot better for having done them. Well, thanks, John, for taking time to talk to us. Oh, guys, it's been a real pleasure. Again, the name of the book is This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. If your finances could use some tuning up or you just like to read about the financial foibles and triumphs of other people, check it out. And triumphs. And triumphs. Foibles and, and triumphs. Triumph. I wanted triumphs. to underline the triumphs there. <laughs> Thank you. In the end, it, ha- it does have a happy ending. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you, guys. show. You can send us your questions, feedback, glowing praise to answers at fool.com. Also, if you're feeling generous with your time, head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to us and give us a review, because I've been staring at the same crabby review since March. (laughs) Some people don't find my voice obnoxious. A lot of people think it's fine. I totally disagree with this person. Well, and then, yeah, and then he said that your voice is crackly and weak, well, which is not helpful feedback. <laughs> the crackly part's probably true. I don't know. Maybe a week, too. It's our voices. We can't do anything what about you, it. You like, like You get what you get. All right. Anyway, <laughs> so please, can you go get, leave a review so I have to stop seeing that one over and over again? Ugh. I mean, we welcome all feedback, even if it's negative. Yeah, Save that feedback for the email. Yeah, email us your negative feedback so we can open a dialogue. There you and go. And then post your glowing praise on iTunes. Would you, please? <laughs> Thanks. The show is edited strummily by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish.